Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. We're glad so many of you are joining us today. My name is Gary Harbat. I'm from the Client Success Team, and I am joined by my two colleagues, Chuck Humphrey in our Danville, Pennsylvania office, and Ed Morasco, who's here with me in Pittsburgh. Good afternoon, everyone, and thanks again for joining. This is a webinar on the No Surprises Act, an act that is, uh, as we say here at QMC, a very fluid act. A lot of things happening and almost happening daily. A lot of act that we're getting a lot of questions on from both the air medical industry and the ground. So hopefully we can not only inform you, but maybe bring some clarity to some issues that you may be uh, uh, concerned about. We're glad to do that. We'll do the best we can for you. As I said, this is a very much a changing um, picture as we go through. Um, Ed's going to be doing the heavy lifting today. He's got some great slides set up for you. Good afternoon, Ed. It's good to have you. Hey, G. Thanks. Thanks for uh, setting us up and looking forward to, to uh, spending some time with, uh, with a group of people that are out there. Thanks for joining us today for the webinar. Great. And Chuck, welcome to you. Hey, uh, thanks, Gary. And uh, Ed, uh, looking forward to your wisdom as always. As always. So uh, let's get started here. I know people are still filing in, but before we get started, just a couple things. We recognize that you're going to have questions as we go through today's program, and we encourage those questions. Uh, sadly, you can see us. Uh, we're not the prettiest picture, um, and we can't see you, um, but you can ask questions as we go through today's program. Um, and please, well, don't be backward about asking questions. You know, the only foolish question is the one that goes unasked. So ask away and uh, hopefully we will be able to field that question for you. And if not, we will most assuredly get back to you with an answer uh, once we are able to do a little research and ascertain it if we have to do that. And to do that, you very simply go to the bottom of your video screen and uh, just go into the Q&A button. Uh, and if you just type your question in, it'll pop up on our screen and we will pose that question to the most appropriate person to hopefully answer it for you. Uh, but don't be backward at all. You can ask questions at any time. Uh, Ed knows that from time to time through today's program, we may stop him and ask a question. So uh, we'll surely have time for questions at the end, but anytime if something uh, grabs your attention and you have a thought in your mind you wanna ask, by all means, uh, just hit that Q&A button, type it in, and we'll be glad to pose that question for you. So with that, I am going to turn uh, today's program over to Ed Morasco. Ed is our Vice President of Business Development. He's been with QMC for many years, um, very much uh, well-known in the air medical industry. Uh, we were just at the AMTC conference uh, um, in Fort Worth a few weeks ago, and I refer to Ed as the mayor there. He just seems to know everybody, and I think most of you who are on today uh, know Ed. He brings a wealth of knowledge to the table, especially as it relates to the air medical industry, and of course, has been studying the No Surprises Act uh, for some time. We've talked uh, on and on about it over the past few months, and Ed seems to be at the forefront of what's going on. So with that, I will turn this over to Ed uh, with my thanks and Ed, it's all yours. Thanks Gary and uh, appreciate it. Um, I am gonna share one piece of wisdom probably that's the most salient of the next hour or so and that is, uh, Chuck, don't ever get married outside in November. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, I'm, I, I'm not going to take that advice, but uh, thanks for offering it. <laughs> yes, for those of you joining us today, our colleague Chuck is getting married on Saturday in a state park on a rock. And uh, there's a long story to that, which we won't give you today, but we extend our thanks to Chuck. And uh, Chuck, I hope the weather is 75 degrees and it's balmy and there's blue skies, but it is November in Northeast Pennsylvania, so <laughs> right. good luck to you, buddy. Good luck. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. so, so as we move forward, uh, the material we're going to cover today, we're going to share with you today, really is assembled by a whole team of folks here at QMC. It includes our operations team, our compliance group, which Chuck is obviously a part of as well, our regulatory group, and, and the executive leadership team. So I'm just, I just get to be the person... Uh, here today on the webinar, in some respects, maybe I drew the short straw. Uh, this is something we've been following for, for several years. I actually took some time uh, earlier in the week and over the weekend to look back. I think our first blog post on balanced billing was back in 2018. So this is not a new issue. It's been an issue that's plagued the industry for quite a while. And uh, 
there has been quite a bit of communication around the industry on this matter and, and from us as well, um, even before the act was passed. The presentation today, as Gary mentioned, is designed to be interactive, so please stop me, ask a question. Chuck and Gary will be, uh, will be trying to find uh, your hand as you raise it out there, and they'll stop me appropriately uh, throughout the presentation. We're going to provide you with some valuable information and insight. However, um, it, it's important that you know we also work together to identify issues and outstanding questions that we can get answers to. So we're, we're going to talk about a little bit about the background of the act, which I think is important. It's a little bit instructive as we try to interpret the regulations that are rolling out. We're going to talk about some of the key provisions of the act, some of the issues and challenges with the act, and most of that relates to the intent, the congressional intent versus where we are in the regulatory process. And we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit deeper uh, and unpack that a bit as we move through the presentation. And then I'll give you a little bit of a status report on where things are today as we know them. And they are very fluid. For those of you who had an opportunity to check your email this morning, you'll, you'll know that Ames communicated, and this has been in the works for a couple of weeks, uh, that the Air Medical Association did indeed file suit this week uh, regarding the No Surprises Act. So we'll touch base on that a little bit later on as well. And then I wanna spend a couple of minutes talking to you about our playbook and what QuickMed is doing with our customers uh, to be able to be prepared and help you be prepared for all the things we're gonna face uh, when the No Surprises Act takes effect. So just by way of some quick background, um, the NSA was passed as a part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, which actually was passed on and acted on December 27th of 2020. Merry Christmas to us, right? Just what we needed uh, at the end of last year after all we faced with COVID and everything else. And here we are um, with one of the most daunting pieces of legislation we faced as an industry probably over the last decade or so. Balanced bills are the key issue here, and for those of you who don't really aren't aware or, or maybe haven't thought much about it, um, this is one of those things that has been going on for an awful lot of time, and so it really relates to or pertains directly to a case where you have an out-of-network supplier or provider, so that's us, and um, we bill the patient for the difference between what our bill charges and what the payer, the health plan, actually covers. That amount, that spread, is called a balanced bill. And when a balanced bill is expected, uh, when the patient's aware and notified in advance, that really has not been uh, the sort of the crux of the issue or what's really gotten Congress's gutchies in a bunch. It's really when those balanced bills are surprised. And so that's where you hear the two terms, balanced billing and surprise medical bill. And a surprise medical bill is simply a balanced bill that was unexpected by the patient um, from the provider or supplier in an out-of-network situation. So we're gonna, we're gonna delve into those a little bit more deeply. Uh, for those of you who may not be aware, it's an interesting piece of legislation in that there are three agencies that are uh, charged with responsibility for developing the regulations and enforcing the regulations associated with the No Surprises Act. It's the Department of Health and Human Services, the Department of Labor, and the Department of Treasury. What's even more interesting is the fact that the Department of Transportation is not one of the agencies that was charged with um, enforcing and developing the regulations. And for those of you who've been around the industry over the last couple of years, you know that there was a huge effort on a part of the Department of Transportation. In fact, a piece of legislation, the FAA Reauthorization Act from a couple of years ago, impaneled a patient billing and advisory committee that did a lot of work during COVID um, to develop some um, recommendations and rules related to this matter and uh, as quickly as that work was done it became almost um, unimportant because the No Surprises Act superseded um, some of that jurisdiction and some of those recommendations although there are a couple of areas we'll talk about as we move forward where um, I think we can harken back to the recommendations that came out of that committee and try and figure out how they dovetail in with some of the expectations of the No Surprises Act. With respect to applicability, it's not universal. So the NSA applies to um, patients who get medical coverage through their employer. Um, it could be a multi-employer plan, um, could be through the federal marketplace or any one of those number of state marketplaces that are out there. Um, and it could be, uh, it also applies when you buy coverage directly um, from a health plan. It does not apply to Medicare, Medicaid, Indian Health Service, Veterans Affairs, Healthcare, and TRICARE, 
because there's already a prohibition in those plans against balanced billing. We have to be in network with Medicare. I think everybody who's been around uh, medical transport billing and, and healthcare billing and all for the last uh, you know couple of decades, you're well aware of the fact that we have to accept assignment. Basically, we have to be in network uh, with those payers. And the scariest part of this whole thing is that the, the lion's share of the provisions for the No Surprises Act take effect on January 1 of 2022. So let me just repeat that again. The act was passed in December of 20, uh, and here we are a little less than one year later, and we face um, the implementation of the major portions of the act here in less than 60 days. So a lot of work has gone into this by the agencies as well as by the industry to track what the agencies are doing. Um, but here we are, and, and we're facing down the barrel of the gun, so to speak. I want to take a couple of minutes to dive into some of the key provisions, and I think going through them is really important. It will be helpful to flesh out some of what the challenges are, at least as we see them, in the No Surprises Act. First of all, first and foremost, the main goal and, and the primary provision uh, of the No Surprises Act is the elimination of balance billing, right? We want to get the patients out of the middle. So the NSA prohibits balance billing of patients for services provided in an out-of-network situation. And one way or another, whatever happens with all the rest of this, it's pretty clear that on 1-1 of 22, we are no longer going to be able to send balance bills to patients. Um, regardless of what, what the outcome is of um, the IDR process and some of the legal challenges, which we'll talk about in a few slides as well. So I think everybody has to uh, buckle up and get strapped in and expect that we're, um, we're not going to be able to send those bills out um, effective 1-1 of 22. Now, now Ed, uh, I'll jump in here just because I know we have some ground listeners. There's been discussion, and originally this, the intent this was aimed at air, but the extension of it now, it seems like maybe non-emergency ground is going to be included. Can you speak to that real quick? Yeah, and it's a great point, Chuck. And I think, you know, as you dive into some of the details, and we'll cover some of this in a few slides, there are some interesting provisions where there might be unintended consequences. So we'll talk about some of the notices, the requirements for notices that are out there, um, which, which talk about things like good faith estimates for non-emergency services, and so, you know, fixed wing and, and non-emergency ground come to the forefront in my mind as I think about those provisions. And again, you're right. This was not intended to apply to ground. The issue that's driving, uh, that drove the passage of the No Surprises Act really is, is not a ground medical transport issue. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a couple of slides about sort of what, what the genesis of some of this is. Um, but it certainly wasn't. Um, balanced ground ambulance bills. Those numbers are not the kind of numbers that get Congress's attention. Um, but some of the provisions um, by interpretation could clearly apply, even though the intent wasn't there, could clearly apply to non-emergency ground situations for sure. Sure. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for clarification. Yeah, so, so cost sharing, really that's the amount of out-of-network services um, uh, the, the amount of money that uh, an individual, a patient pays for out-of-network services. And so in our current, you know, current state today, those um, out-of-network uh, dollars that a patient will pay do not currently apply to things like deductibles um, and maximum out-of-pocket limitations in most health plans. So that's a little bit of a rub point. And, and so that's one of the things that, that system cost is something that um, has been a, a focus of the legislation and of all the discussions leading up to the legislation. Uh, the, other, the other provision, key provision, which we'll talk about in a little bit more detail um, in a few slides, and that is that the NSA requires health plans um, that have coverage for emergency services to pay for those emergency services without any prior authorizations and regardless of whether the facility is in network or not. So for some of us out there, and again, this, this has been a, you know, a real challenge on the ground side, this could be one of those positive unintended consequences. And that is, we found ourselves getting um, you know, inquiries about prior authorizations for things like emergency ground services, which you know, for years was not something that we expected. You know, look, low acuity, repetitive ground transports, non-emergent you expect to have some challenges and some expectation around prior authorization. Um, but we've, we've received, you know, in the last couple of years, inquiries from payers about 
prior ops for emergency 911 responses, gosh, even helicopter scene runs, those kinds of things. So this is one of the silver linings that, you know, there's not a lot of attention paid to this uh, because of all the negatives, the things that we're concerned about in the No Surprises Act, but clearly um, pieces of the language here hold the health plans accountable for paying for non-emergency services with, or for paying for emergency services without prior authorizations, which is a little bit of good news uh, for us in the industry. And then there's a lot of detail uh, as we move forward in some of the slides about the IDR, independent dispute resolution process. And really the NSA provides um, for this dispute resolution process to settle agreements between providers and suppliers, us and health plans related to payment for out-of-network services. So, um, and there's the regulations, which we'll talk about in a few slides, provide some additional detail, but the, the basic premise here is the government didn't want to be in the middle of this mess between us and the payers, and certainly doesn't want the patients to be in the middle of that mess. That's the whole genesis of the No Surprises Act. Let's get the patient out of the middle of this nightmare. And so they fashioned an independent dispute resolution process um, that will be where sort of the rubber meets the road with regard to how these things get settled. And there I have some, um, another question or two I'll throw, because I think it's pertinent to where you're at right now. Um, yeah. Jacob asks, uh, emergency services as determined by the sending provider and their choice of the appropriate method of transportation as documented in a question. Yeah, so this is the age old, this is the age old question about um, transports, interfacility transports in particular. Um, and this is something that, you know, there's been discussion that dates back even to the establishment of the ground ambulance or the, uh, the ambulance fee schedule, um, you know, going back to around the turn of the century. And we argued back in those discussions with um, the powers that be that we as the providers of the medical transport service don't make the decision in 90% of the cases, um, not only about whether we're the mode of transport that gets to be used, but, but from where and to where. And so that's always been the clinker in, in how these things are determined. You know, we get the phone call, we pick up the patient, we go from point A to point B because the people who are taking care of the patient identify that they can't get the care that they need where they are and they need to go to somewhere else and we do that, we respond in good faith, but yet somehow at the end of that transport, um, you know, we, we don't get paid or we get part of the miles denied or, you know, all those various rejections and denials that happen. So uh, this provides no clarity from my standpoint uh, on that question. I think at the end of the day, the burden of proof is still gonna be on us, the providers and suppliers, to be able to justify the transport. Um, and again, can think about having conversations where we said, um, look, medical necessity should not be in question here because a physician um, made the decision for us to move this patient from Hospital A in the rural hinterlands to Hospital B, which is a you know stroke center or trauma center or cardiac center or what have you. Um, so I don't I don't really see anything in here that gives us any leg to stand on to improve that situation. And then also um, there's an attendee who's asking the basic definition of balance billing that we'll use today, and I think. You mentioned that that would be above and beyond copay and deductibles. Is that correct? Ed? Yeah, it's a great, great, great question. And so, what we're dealing with here is the amount above and beyond that that the patient would have to pay out of pocket. So, the patient would still be subject to whatever copay and deductible is applicable. The interesting um, uh, clarification, though, and we'll talk about this in a little bit more detail in a few slides, and that is that number gets computed on the in network rate not on the charges. So that'll be a difference from where we are today, current state, to the future. Um, and that's part of the argument, right? Uh, if you have a, a deductible or you have a, a maximum amount of pocket, um, you don't get credit for some of these things, some of these payments you're making, but also we expect that patient to pay uh, those amounts based on our full charges, not necessarily what the in-network rate is. So. The copay will be, to say, for example, it's 20% copay like it is for Medicare. Right now for Medicare, that's 20% of the Medicare fee schedule. In a non-Medicare situation with a commercial health plan, that'll be 20% of the in-network rate, not 20% of our charges. Uh, good. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah. yeah, I hope that covers it. 
Um, so then there are some notice requirements, uh, and the act requires certain healthcare providers, facilities to furnish patients with uh, kind of a one-page notice, and it has a couple of different provisions. Um, it, the requirements and prohibitions applicable uh, to, to us, the provider of the facility regarding balance billing. So we have to disclose that there's this limit now. Um, it also would, would have to disclose if there's any applicable state balance billing prohibitions or limitations. And there are a number of states that have their own legislation or regulations around balance billing. And Chuck, we were just talking about some of the things that are unfolding in Florida right before we jumped on the call. Yeah. So um, there is a requirement in these notice requirements that, um, that we inform patients of some of those things that might be applicable. And then last but not least, how to contact the appropriate authority, whether it's state or federal, um, if a patient believes they actually um, have, you know, have been wronged or if they believe that the facility has, um, has violated any of those requirements. And there is actually a dispute resolution process for patients, which we'll touch on in a few slides as well. Um, and then um, the last two provisions we're going to dive into as we move forward a little bit here are um, price transparency and, of course, the reporting requirements, which are going to be a big deal and uh, create a fair amount of heartburn as well. So this might, this might uh, clarify that prior question a little bit more as well. So with regard to balanced billing, um, you know, the act and all the related communication call out specific circumstances that you know, commonly generate a surprise bill. And look, it's not, transport has not been one of those things. I mean, the most common sort of scenario that is driving all the kerfuffle about this uh, really is, is where someone goes to uh, an in-network facility and they find out in a surprise kind of fashion that not all of the, the folks who are involved in their care and their episode of care are in network. And I can empathize, empathize. I just went through this about a month ago. So I had to have a medical procedure and I um, uh, spoke to my doctor's office and they said, hey, you have two choices. You can do Thursday morning or you can do Friday afternoon. And being the smart guy that I am with regard to healthcare stuff, I said, well, I don't want that afternoon option because um, you know, by the end of the day, by the afternoon, the, the doc schedule gets all screwed up. I could end up being, you know, NPO for, you know, 20 hours by the time I get my procedure done. Um, I want that first slot in the morning. Not only do I want the morning segment that you offer, but I would like to have the very first slot and I actually offer cash to the scheduler and chocolates if she would get me scheduled for that first procedure in the morning, right? Smart guy, right? Really smart guy. Well, lo and behold, I find out that the afternoon session that the doc does is in the hospital and the morning session the day before, which I selected was at an outpatient surgery center, which is not in network with my insurance. So I was in network with my, with my physician and I thought everything was going to be in network. And it turns out the facility that I selected based on schedule and convenience was not a network facility. So I got a surprise balance bill for a scheduled elective procedure because I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. So there you go. That's, that's sort of the converse of what's driving all this stuff. Um, so the conventional wisdom in this is that, you know, almost all the constituency groups, everybody who's involved really agrees that patients shouldn't get surprise medical bills, right? They should be aware of what their bills are. Um, they should understand in-network and out-of-network, even though it's a complicated matter and someone who I consider myself relatively learned in the ways of healthcare and healthcare delivery. Um, you know, I got on the wrong side of it pretty easily. So I think everybody understands and agrees that if the patient makes a good faith effort to be in network and follow in network guidelines, that they shouldn't be caught off guard by a surprise bill. And I think generally speaking, the healthcare industry, whether you're talking about the physicians, the hospital association, air medical association, even on the health plan side, no one wants that to be the case. Um, you know, we need to protect the patients. Uh, the other thing is from a political point of view, one of the key drivers in the push for the NSA really is a strong desire um, to get the patients out of the middle, which I mentioned, you know, a few minutes ago. And so what got the politicians all geared up on this is that, you know, um, it's a failing of both the health plans and us as providers and suppliers over the last few years to keep the patients out of the middle of this mess. So. That's, that's a challenge. On the other hand, it's not exactly an easy process. The dynamics in the healthcare system are such that, you know, they, they really, they make it hard for everybody involved, all the constituency groups to do that. So I think one of the key misses within the NSA is the lack of recognition that, you know, there are healthcare system factors that contribute to balanced billing. 
Um, you know, so whether you like, and there's a big debate right now, whether you agree with consolidation integration efforts in healthcare, um, or you're more of an antitrust kind of person, you want to keep everything separate. Um, at the end of the day, fragmentation in the health system, you know, having private physicians who are going to multiple facilities like I experienced creates complications. So I think in my mind that the takeaway here is it's not an easy one size fits all solution, but we do need to eliminate balance billing and that is the primary goal of the NSA and we have to keep that in mind as we try and maneuver through the political waters um, as, as they exist um, you know because we're not going to we're not going to win that battle fighting you know uphill um, against that particular concept but the other real challenge is the system cost right so look a recent study um, which was actually quoted in some of the preamble stuff in the NSA and the regulations found that um, payments made to providers by people who get a surprise medical bill for emergency care more than 10 times higher than those made by in-network uh, individuals for the same health care. So it's an interesting data point. And on one hand, I can see the interpretation that says, oh my God, these medical providers are gouging the out-of-network situation. On the other hand, the other way to interpret that data, which I prefer to take, and that is that the in-network rates are really not realistic. They don't cover our costs. They don't make it possible for us to operate um, the way we need to operate to provide the level of care we're expected to provide. And again, that's not a debate we're going to resolve here, but it's one of those things that um, is worth thinking about. And the issue of cost shifting has been going on for decades. It's nothing new. And the No Surprises Act is not going to end that. It's going to continue to be an issue. It's going to limit it or curtail it a bit, but it's going to continue to be an issue because we don't get paid enough from many, of the from many of the government payers, and there's always those patients who can't afford to pay at all that we provide care to. And then I mentioned um, earlier the patient responsibility part of, and this is one of the questions that Chuck posed from, from the audience, that the uh, patient responsibility part of things, the out-of-network cost sharing and surprise bills really historically didn't count towards a person's deductible and out-of-pocket limit, and that's gonna change with the No Surprises Act implementation. So, um, um, you know, that's not going to be something that's going to be a risk anymore. In addition to that, um, the other key thing is um, that the amounts are going to be based on, again, the in-network rate. So, and, and there was some data that was also quoted in the preamble, as well as in, in um, some of the regulatory language, um, that a substantial number of Americans, probably north of 40 percent, um, experience financial distress due to these balance billing and out-of-network situations, basically surprise medical bills. So um, this is not something that affects a, a you know, small percentage of the population. It's significant, which is why it's gotten so much traction. So um, my takeaway here is that you know, the NSA is expected to reduce the cost of healthcare. Whether that reduction comes out of the health plan side or our hide um, remains to be seen. I think the regulations and how they unfold and how the process unfolds will, will drive some of that. Um, but the regular, regulatory process is really where that die will be cast, and that's why we have to be very diligent about monitoring what's going on and, and those sorts of things. So emergency services were a large percentage of the focus or a large portion of the focus of the NSA as well. Um, you know, and, and I mentioned one of the key drivers is someone who goes to the emergency department in good faith that's the in-network place, um, and they find out later that the physicians or the radiologists or somebody else were out of network. And, and again, some of the research um, that was quoted um, in some of the regulatory stuff that was delivered, you know, talk about, um, um, you know, tremendous increases in the out of network costs in a, in a 10, or, 10 or so year period preceding the passage of the No Surprises Act. Uh, and there was an average amount of surprise medical bill quote number that those out of network bills or balances on average increase from 220 bucks an episode to 628 bucks um, in, a, in about a six or seven year period. So again, that's what gets us on the radar screen. Um, so whatever service line you're in, this is a takeaway for our ground colleagues who are on the call here. Um, whatever service line you're in, if your cost trend in your business is on a steep curve like that, um, you're opening yourself up to scrutiny. And, and we certainly did it in the air medical industry. Um, and I don't, to be quite frank, I don't think the air medical industry is what drove a lot of this. I think it was more the emergency department scenario that we described, um, but we got caught up in the wash because we were on that steep curve from a charge and cost perspective. Ed, can I interrupt you for a moment, please, with a question? Yeah. So this uh, Jacob uh, asks here, 
to clarify, the standard patient responsibility does not fall into the classification of balance bill. So a CMS patient would still be able to be billed slash responsible for their 20% of the fee schedule. Yes, great, great question, um, Jacob, and that is exactly right. So we're still required to bill in the case of Medicare and the patient's still obligated to pay the applicable copay amount. So in the case of Medicare, that's a 20% typically. Um, and in the case of commercial health plans, you know, whatever that number is, but again, it'll be based on the in-network rate and not the charges. But yes, deductibles and copays still apply. So consequently, if I, even in my case where I did the out-of-network thing by mistake, um, you know, my deductible would have still been, need to be satisfied with my procedures had it not been prior satisfied. Yeah, anything else, any other questions that are open right now? Not right now, Ed. Nope. Okay, cool. All right, moving forward. So the IDR process, the independent dispute resolution process, it's the primary expectations for the process to resolve payment disputes between health plans and providers. Um, again, the government was looking for an independent arbiter, so it envisions an independent group, not the government, to mitigate these disputes. And um, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's, it's, um, it's a baseball-style arbitration, which means um, each side gives a number. The arbiter can't pick a number in the middle. They can't pick a compromise number. They have to pick one or the other. Um, and so... Um, that's a little bit difficult from our standpoint because typically we, the providers, don't have all the data. Um, the insurance companies, you know, have a wealth of data at their fingertips um, across a broad swatch of the industry, geographically, different kinds of providers, so on and so forth. And we're limited in our knowledge in that regard, even, even though the industry has initiatives going on to capture some of this information, it's not going to be as robust as the payers have. So. Um, that we're, we're already at a disadvantage going into a baseball type arbitration and we'll touch on that a little bit more in, in a little more detail in a few slides. And then um, the act did provide some general guidance for how the arbiters are supposed to carry out that process. And unfortunately, the regulations went quite a bit further beyond that. And a lot of people believe, myself included, um, exceeded the, the statutory um, uh, limits and expectations and even missed the mark a little bit in terms of what the statute itself expected to be used in the process. However, either way you look at it, that decision made by the arbiter is a binding decision. So at the end of the day, when we get that number back, that's the number we have to live with. I'm not going to talk about this too much, but this is, I think we touched on this earlier, there are some notice requirements. Um, you know, while this particular requirement was not really included with medical transport in mind, there may be some elements of this um, that can creep into our space over time. So for example, I think about non-emergency fixed wing transport. Um, currently now it is common practice in these circumstances for the fixed wing provider supplier to provide the patient family with a price quote. Um, and I think depending on the circumstance, if it's someone waiting for a transplant or if it's someone who needs a more immediate transport, it could meet the standard but it may not, you know, sometimes these are done weeks before. So there is a requirement that in these non-emergency situations that, that um, notification come within 72 hours, which includes a good faith estimate of the, of the cost of the transport, that that occurs within 72 hours of actually delivering the service. So this might be a situation where we might have to provide multiple quotes because we provide the first one a week out. And then, you know, we've, we, we now get charged with doing the transport and, we may have to provide another quote before we before we actually do the, the transport mission. The other interesting thing about this, and we're not there yet, we're going to talk about patient disputes. Um, but the standard is if the quote is $400 or more off from the actual charge, meaning if the actual charge is more than $400 um, from the quote, that will trigger the patient's ability to dispute the fee. So if you think about this in long range fixed wing work, for example, you know, we're quoting numbers that are 60, 70, $80,000 to move someone from, you know, a foreign country to, you know, back home stateside or from one part of the country to another for some specific service that they need. And so the margin for error is not very large. 400 bucks is the statutory number that's been included uh, in terms of what that, you know, what constitutes being in, in excess um, or a meaningful uh, difference between the good faith estimate and the actual uh, dollar amount. 
Yeah, Ed, I'm going to interrupt here real quick. Um, so Jeff asks, um, can we confirm that the NSA has no impact on the uninsured and therefore the uninsured will still be fully responsible for the charged amount? Yeah, that's, that's actually a great question and it's not the case. So there is a very specific provision of the NSA that applies to the uninsured and that is the good faith estimate um, uh, expectation and the, and the commensurate dispute that goes along with that dispute resolution that goes with that. So in fact, it's primarily written for the uninsured, that good faith estimate that has to be within $400 of the actual charge eventually um, given to the patient. Um, does apply specifically to um, the uninsured uh, patients without insurance. Okay, and then also the follow-up question from Jacob: Are the arbitration decisions going to be case by case or lumped together for specific payers? Yeah, so great question, Jacob. Again, and um, we'll touch on it in a couple of slides. But the quick answer is, um, it's a little bit of both. So, if there's a similar situation, similar transport type between the same provider and the same payer, um, then the decision could be extended, whatever that binding arbitration decision could be extended. And there's also a period where there's a cooling off period or there's a provision where there's a cooling off period where if you have multiple trips with the same basic uh, mission profile with the same payer and the same provider, you can't dispute each of those individually either. You have to wait a period of time before um, you can submit those additional um, IDR requests. So um, multiple requests between the same payer and provider um, will be a little bit complicated. And you can see in our business, there's going to be a lot of that because we have our most common payers, right, that we deal with. If you're in Western Pennsylvania or if you're in upstate New York, um, like our friends at, you know, Mercy Flight Central, they deal with a lot of the same payers repeatedly over the course of time um, because there's a lot of covered lives by those commercial payers up in their neck of the woods. So just briefly touch on air ambulance reporting. This is a little bit of a, um, you know, gives me a little bit of heartburn. Um, some interesting things here, the act and the subsequent regs established the Health and Human Services Department and the Department of Transportation as jointly responsible for receiving and analyzing the data. It's interesting because the DOT was not one of the tri-agencies referenced in the original NSA, but they are gonna have a role when it comes to analysis of the data as probably is appropriate um, but it's just interesting the way the agencies were sort of included in certain pieces and not included in others. Um, the information that we're going to be reported to, required to report includes a fair amount of transport demographic information, so you know, mission profile type related information. Obviously, they're going to want to see the payer mix. Um, that's a key part of any analysis looking at cost and reimbursement um, in, in a service line. Um, the patient's insurance status, and this will be a tough one because, as you know, as most folks who are familiar with billing know, that will change during the course of the episode with the patient. You know, they may be, uh, you know, they may start out as primary self-paying. We discover insurance, and then we have to bill that insurance, and we may discover secondary coverage and things of that nature, so on and so forth. So um, whether or not the claim was denied, rejected, and so forth, um, looking at areas and regions of service, and this is an interesting one. Um, the data is going to be dissected and analyzed and have to be reported based on ownership type. So private entities versus public, um, you know, there's going to be a lot more work that has to be done on the regulatory side before we sort of sift through that and unpack that completely. And just, just a word, just a general word about this cost reporting stuff for air medical transport. You know, on the ground side, and we're right in the middle of year one, we got delayed with COVID on, on ambulance uh, cost reporting or ambulance reporting requirements for Medicare, but it took several years to develop the algorithm to define what those terms are and how that data should be reported. And they're trying to do this in less than a year and probably more like six months. So it's going to be a bit of a challenge and we think there's a lot more work that needs to be done here. And, and for example, the Air Medical Association has hired a third party consultant to look at this and render some opinions and it's a data analytics um, organization to look at this and come up with some uh, recommendations um, uh, for um, for us as an industry and, and hopefully recommendations that the, the agencies will heed uh, with regard to how we have to define this stuff and how much work needs to go into fashioning the tool. And um, basic the basic expectation around when this starts is 90 days after publication of the final rule reporting should commence. So 
once the final rule about how the things are defined and how we have to report is determined, we don't have a lot of time to react and respond to that. 90 days later, we've got to start submitting data. Um, and again, that's a little different than what has been the case on the ground side. As you recall, there was a much larger lead up to that, and rightfully so because of how complex the process is. Ed, Jeff, mm -hmm. has, a, Jeff has a follow up question. Mm -hmm. um, he states your answer appears to be relate that you gave him appears to relate to non-emergency transport as no good faith estimate is provided for an emergency transport. Yeah, great point. Yeah, we are talking about in those notifications, we're talking about non-emergency situations. Um, and again, so if you're a fixed wing provider or if you happen to engage in, um, you know, more non-emergency kinds of uh, helicopter work and certainly on the ground side, um, if applicable, it would be in those circumstances. And Jeff, that's one of those things that's also a bit tricky as well. Um, and we get this, we get this a lot. Um, our guys take care of this and manage these kinds of projections and things a lot. We do get challenges to inter-facility helicopter flights as being really non-emergent in some circumstances where someone's going to a higher level of care. Um, you know, you may have, there are some programs out there, and I can think of one um, offhand that we build for that do, they stack flights. And so they've got a cardiac series of cardiac patients moving from a lower level of acuity to a higher one. They operate one aircraft, and they will actually, from time to time, depending on the patient's situation and their circumstance, they'll complete the mission they're on before they launch out on the second one. They don't call another aircraft in. They don't call mutual aid entity in. So in those circumstances, is that second trip truly an emergency? And, you know, for most of the industry, and, and it's different with all programs, but, you know, about 60% of the helicopter flights we do are inter-facility and about 40% are seen. So you can see where it's a, it could be a big impact. So the emergency, non-emergency thing is, gives me a little bit of heartburn um, in that regard. So interim final rules, you may be aware a number of these have been published. Um, uh, IFR1 was published back on July 13th, and it dealt primarily with reiterating the fact that balance billing was prohibited. prohibited. Um, it did um, for emergency services. That was, that was where some of the more detail was put in around uh, for emergency services requiring the health plans to pay for it without prior authorization. Um, and then also it addressed some of the out-of-pocket expense concerns, so the patient responsibility, and this was the piece of the reg where it basically said, um, uh, patient responsibility amount of out-of-pocket network service is limited to that which is would be due for in-network services and also requires any cost-sharing payments to be counted towards, as we said earlier, all those out-of-pocket limits. So deductibles and out-of-pocket maximums would be satisfied by those um, out-of-pocket payments um, that, the payment, that the patient was responsible for. And then um, there was also um, some some additional discussion around cost sharing um, definitions. And so the act um, provides further clarification on cost sharing referencing uh, things like all payer agreements um, as defined by the Social Security Act and, and which may also be defined by um, state law. So essentially that cost sharing is limited to whatever is allowed by the Social Security Act as well as any applicable state law. And the lesser of, this is, the, this is again where my gutsy's getting a bunch, the lesser of bill charges of the QPA. So the QPA or qualifying payment amount, if you don't, if you haven't heard that term or you haven't talked about that term, that's one of those ones you probably want to um, read up on right away. And there's some information um, in some of the blog posts and things that QuickMed has put out. And we're happy to talk with you in more detail about that. But the, the um, IFR defines the QPA loosely as the median contracted rate. And so that left a little bit of interpretation open, but as we see in further regulation, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, that number gets narrowed down even further. And that's what really gives us heartburn um, in the industry is that qualified payment amount is a number that probably is not working in our favor as providers and suppliers. And again, there was some, um, some uh, mention in IFR1 of the patient notice requirements and such that we, we referenced earlier. So the other interesting thing about these IFRs, and so the difference between an interim final rule and a notice of proposed rulemaking, so IFR versus NPRM, is the IFR has a very tight timeline. We had a 60-day period from July 13th to comment on this, which is almost unheard of in a regulation that, that is this complex. Um, and so 
that's a bit of a challenge in the process. And as you'll see um, in a few slides in another slide or so, um, the second piece, um, there was a second IFR that was published as well, which also had a very tight timeline on it. So the notice of proposed rulemaking was published on September 10th um, of this year. Um, it really talks mostly about reporting requirements, and we touched on that briefly on a previous slide, um, but it does require air ambulance providers to meet um, cost and claims data reporting requirements. And um, it also has some other requirements um, around agent broker relationships, which doesn't apply too much in the emergency world or in the helicopter world. And then there are some new um, enforcement procedures in that NPRM related to the Public Health Act. And there probably will be some additional exposure to air medical transport programs um, related to complying with the No Surprises Act and other things related to um, these, this particular, these provisions in the NPRM. And also changes some of the disclosure and reporting requirements on health plans. Um, um, so, again, more bureaucratic kind of stuff, mostly focused on notices and things of that nature, but, um, and, and really a lot more time to comment on the NPRM than the IFRs. And so then the real killer for us has been the, the release of IFR Part 2, which was released on um, September 30th, and it really goes into great depth on the independent dispute resolution process. Um, and it clarifies the applicability. So the IDR process applies only to out-of-network situations. It doesn't apply to resolving disputes. If you're in network with Blue Cross of North Carolina and you have a dispute, you cannot use the IDR process to mitigate that dispute. It's clearly and only um, uh, to be used for out-of-network situations. So the normal processes we use to negotiate with payers and, and resolve disputes is what we're gonna have to use um, in those other situations, in those in-network situations. Um, the other thing that's kind of important, and it speaks to some of the stuff we're doing in our playbook for you on behalf of our clients, and that is there's an open negotiation period that was defined in this particular IFR. And so once you get your payment, we have 30 days to, to review that payment and negotiate with the payer around that number. So as we do now, we'll get an interim payment um, and we have some time, you know, we would normally dispute that with with the payer and with your help uh, as the customer, as our partner, you know, we would try and uh, get that number. We did have another question. Um, Shoot, let me just, ahead. let me pull that up here real quick. Um, I lost it there for a minute when your screen popped up. So, so Jacob is asking was 65 to 70% being CMS. Is that weighted in what is considered to be the QPA is the percentage dependent on area uh, but high percentage is CMS. Yeah, so great question. We're not exactly 100% clear. Um, that's one of the moving targets in this is how the in-network rate will be computed. So the question about whether other payers are included in that, not just the commercial health plans that this was typically or specifically designed to address. The other question is what types of agreements, in-network agreements are going to be included. So for example, one of the big rub points is we do a lot of single case agreements. So I have insurance, Blue Cross of Western Pennsylvania or Highmark, right? And I'm traveling in Florida on vacation and I have a heart attack. Um, and Air, an Aeromed at Tampa General picks me up and takes me um, someplace to get taken care of. I'm obviously not going to be, or Aeromed's not going to be in network with Highmark, Blue Cross of Western Pennsylvania. So a lot of times we'll negotiate a single case arrangement and we do that with our client partners uh, in tandem. And Oftentimes, the payer is not as rigid as they would be negotiating an in-network arrangement with a local provider that they're going to see a ton of claims, right? Highmark is like, okay, if Morasco needs transported, you know, I'll pay 80 cents on a dollar because I might get three claims a year from Aramad. But if, if it's Blue Cross of Florida, they're going to be negotiating a lot more stiffly with Aramed because that's where a lot of their covered lives are is in the Aramed service area. So, um, we would like to see those um, those other rates, those single case agreements included in the computation. We don't want to see Medicare and Medicaid rates included in the computation. And the second follow-on question was about geography, right? So there's a couple of different schools of thoughts on schools of thought on geography, and that is some folks might want multiple jurisdictions if they have a particularly bad negotiating position. Let's say they're one of four or five paramedical providers in their marketplace and the payers have crammed down 
in, let's say in, in Western Pennsylvania, the payers have crammed down the, the rates. They might want to see the Ohio rates and the West Virginia rates if you know the geography. You know, uh, all three of those states are, you know, stone's throw from several metropolitan areas, Columbus, um, Morgantown, West Virginia, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So it might make more sense for those to be regional rates. So we're not sure exactly what that, how the computation is going to be done from a regional perspective as well. All right. Thanks. Thanks for answering that. Yeah. And then I'll skip some of these, um, but but there is some um, there are some things additional detail about good faith estimates that are important as well. And I want to jump into because we're almost out of time. I want to jump into the status report and where things are now. So, first of all, just some general observations about the No Surprises Act. I think most healthcare constituents um, agree that some form of action is necessary to get patients out of the middle. Right? We don't want to be working with the patients. Although I will say in, in one breath, I, I think that's true. But in another breath, sometimes the patients have more leverage with the insurers and the employers who are buying that insurance coverage than we do as providers. But in general, I think people believe uh, that we, we have to find a way to get the patients out of the of uh, this situation. Yeah, the regulatory situation as things evolve is a challenge. The industry has committed significant resources to track the process and weigh in as necessary. And that includes talking with the agencies themselves. Um, it's talking with members of Congress who were involved in the original um, write-up of the legislation and their staffs who were heavily involved in fashioning the legislation. Um, you know, the Air Medical Association, there are at least three meetings a week made up of key constituency groups um, that, are, that are trying to address different aspects of the No Surprises Act. So there has been no shortage of uh, effort to sort of watch the regulations and shape how uh, that come out. I don't think we've been as successful as we'd like to be, uh, but some of the key issues are the data reporting, which we're concerned about because we think that'll have an impact on future iterations of the law and the regulations, but also that QPA and the IDR process. So the fact that the QPA is defined very narrowly as the median and network rate, and also that in IFR2, it goes on more specifically to say that that should be the primary tool used by the arbitrators. And clearly the legislation included very specifically other factors that should be considered by the arbiter. And the regulations seem to totally ignore that, those couple of lines in the act itself um, and move to really stating that the, the QPA is the primary source and going even further than that to say that if the arbiter wants to vary from that, from the, the bid, the quote that's closest to the QPA, that, that there needs to be sufficient justification for that. So I think that's got a lot of people um, uh, concerned and at least on the provider side, I'm sure the payer side is ecstatic about that. Um, and for that very reason, there have been already a couple lawsuits filed. So if you're not aware, the Texas Medical Association filed suit a few weeks ago uh, challenging the regula regulations for the NSA as an overreach, among other things. And then just this week, um, the Air Medical Association filed suit, and this is something that's been developing for the last couple of weeks. Um, again, some of that committee work that's done every week with the legal minds and such, um, that basically uh, argues that the, the, uh, the IFRs overstepped and did not honor the original intent that Congress had, particularly around um, the QPA and the IDR process. So just quickly, our playbook, um, there's a couple things that are really strategically important. Whether or not you're in-network or not in-network is going to be a, a more crucial decision in these days. Um, and so one of the recommendations we're making is for each institution, each organization, to make that decision, um, uh, if they haven't already made it, to consider it and, and think carefully about it from a financial, strategic, um, uh, as well as a financial viability perspective. Um, and so, um, you know, that's a piece, if you haven't started that process in your organization, and we're happy to help you with the financial analysis part of that for sure, but that's something that I know a number of you um, have already had that thought process, but if you haven't, you probably should be thinking about that. And even if you're on the ground side, um, whether you're in network or out of network, I think is a different, is a different decision today than it was 10 years ago um, because of some of these things that are happening and some of the political evolution of things. Um, we're going to flag these claims in our process. We have to because there's some special handling requirements. We talked about the timelines for the IDR process and that open negotiation period and all those things. So 
When it's an out-of-network claim, QuickMed is going to flag that claim, and we're going to handle that differently than we handle an in-network claim. Um, and this is important because even if you decide to be in-network with the lion's share of your payers, with the big commercial payers in your service area, you're probably always going to have those onesies or twosies, people who are visiting from another area who have an insurance plan that is not indigenous to your area, and you're going to have to manage those out-of-network claims, and we're going to have to manage them for you very carefully to make sure that you don't lose money on them or miss the deadline. So we're going to have a process in place to do that. Um, the other thing that's going to be important is you working with us to determine what's an acceptable payment amount. Because if the payment's acceptable, then there's no negotiation that goes on. If that payment's not acceptable, um, then we have that 30-day negotiation period, and ultimately we may have to apply to the IDR process. So we need to work together up front to develop a kind of a tool that, that classifies what you're, what you're willing to accept, what's a reasonable amount to accept. And um, um, here's yeah. a good question too, and it kind of falls right where you're at. Um, where, where or how do memberships uh, play into all of this? Yeah. Wow. Well, That's let's say little... subscriptions. We, we, we'll, we'll clarify that and make sure that if anybody's listening, we're using the uh, PC term, I guess, huh? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, you know, that's an interesting question. I think in some respects, particularly in the air medical industry, this is going to make them obsolete. And there's already been some pressure. The Patient Billing Advisory Committee um, uh, recommended that a, a committee of the industry be convened to look at subscription or membership programs and come up with recommendations. There's some really bad press around membership programs and subscription programs in the last couple of years. Um, and, and it's too detailed to get into here, but there's a pretty, there was a pretty good push to, at least in air medicine, to get out of that part of the business. Um, on the other hand, you know, the big sell for subscription programs, membership programs has been to protect the patient for, from those balance bills. And, with those balance bills now not being permitted anymore after January 1, I think the utility of them might be less. On the other hand, you know, people are still going to buy supplemental insurances uh, like, you know, AARP sells Medicare SUPS that cover that copayment and some of those out-of-pocket expenses so that the patient is covered for that as well. So I don't think it makes them completely obsolete. There might be some applicability there, um, but certainly I think they'll be less um, desirable after the NSA takes effect. Yep. Yeah, that's a, in, in fact, that question just rolled up today with regards to ground and Medicaid. And mm -hmm. there's always a lot of discussion around subscriptions that, mm -hmm. that we have to navigate through. So, yep, good. Uh, thanks for. Yeah. Yep. So lastly, about our playbook, um, you know, the other thing we have to do is we have to come up with a plan with you to develop what that number is we're going to submit. And again, as I mentioned earlier, the insurance companies have all the, they have, they're sitting with all the cards here because they have the more robust data. But we're going to have to initially go in with a number, and it's going to be obviously different by client, by program. Um, and then as the process unfolds, we have to track those decisions, and it's going to shape how we submit numbers moving forward. But all that is going to be ultimately shaped by what the definition is of the qualifying payment amount um, and, and what the uh, arbiters are expected to pin those decisions on with respect to that number and the mitigating factors. So we need to be strategic about it um, because not only is there a $50 fee, fee to apply to the process, but the loser um, has to, is responsible for all the cost of the arbitration process and we asked on a webinar not too long ago of CMS what that number looks like. And, uh, you know, they were semi-noncommittal, but they said around $2,000. So, you know, if, you're, if you've got a, you know, a $30,000 air medical transport claim and you've been paid $15,000 and that's not enough and you're trying to get $20,000 uh, and you lose, you're going to get $15,000 minus the $2,000 and $50, $2,050 it costs to go through the process. So that can get upside down real fast and not palatable from a financial perspective. So we have to work together to be um, very strategic about um, the number we submit and, and uh, as we move forward in the process. So sorry, we went a little bit over and sorry for the glitch there, but um, I'll stay on for a while to answer any additional questions that you may have uh, about the process. Um, in the essence of time, um, 
we're, we uh, had a few other questions that we copied and pasted to Word, and we're going to send those over to you so you can uh, speak to the people directly by email or phone, whatever you want to do. Perfect. That sounds great. I'm glad to do it. I really appreciate the time today. And Gary, I appreciate you being down there at WQMC running the show. And Chuck, as always, thanks for um, facilitating great questions. And it's, it's a pleasure to be uh, hanging out with you guys and doing these things. So to all of you who are joining us today, thank you. Uh, we did record this, so should you wish to have a link, you can email us at clientsuccess at quickmedclaims.com. We'll be get, glad to send you a link uh, to the um, YouTube channel where it's going to be located. Um, and as always, don't be hesitant in ever asking us questions. Just because it's a webinar doesn't mean you can ask questions beyond that. So we're always here to help you, um, clients and friends, at any time. So uh, thanks for joining us today. It was great to see so many of you here. Thanks to my colleagues, Chuck Humphrey and Ed Marasco. I uh, really appreciate it. And in the meantime, uh, should you need anything else, let me know. Oh, one other thing, we also be taking the audio track of this to put on our podcast channel as well, too, the QMC EMS Board and Caller, which is available on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Music, and just about all the major podcast channels out there. So feel free to go and grab it there. It makes for great entertainment on the right. Yeah, and you can now ask Alexa to pull up the QMC EMS Board and Caller, and yep. she will connect you right to our podcast so amazing it alexa knows us how about yes. that so so again thank you everybody for joining today we hope you have a great day and hey be, be safe, safe out there, out there.